Welcome to the Thinking Church podcast with me, Chris Bright. Every week, I'll be speaking with a church leader about ministry strategy and getting to grips with not just what they do, but the thinking behind why they do it. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Well, my guest this week is Dr. John Andrews. Uh, John has been in full-time church leadership since 1987. Uh, Though called to the UK, John has ministered in over 30 nations around the world uh, with a passion to equip and inspire leaders as well as empower followers of Jesus into effective lifestyle and service. John has pastored in churches in Havercroft, West Yorkshire, um, in in Rotherham, and has served on the team at Renewal Christian Centre in Solihull. John has also served as the principal of the British Assemblies of God Bible College, and now travels extensively, engaging his passion to teach the word of God, inspiring a generation of Jesus followers to love and serve their world. And he's through online, he's been definitely doing that online through COVID as well. Uh, as a graduate of Mattersea Hall, he also holds a master's degree in Pentecostal and Charismatic Studies from Sheffield, Uni- Sheffield University and a doctorate from the University of Wales. He's authored 12 books, including 252, Learning How to Grow on Purpose, and Extravagant, When Worship Becomes a Lifestyle. Uh, John, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. It's fantastic to be back. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great, great privilege and a great joy uh, to see you and to connect with you again. So thank you so much. Bless you. Brilliant. Well, um, well, let, let's dive into it because uh, I wanted to speak to you today because I've been blogging through the book of Acts and I, I think somehow I started it and it was one sunny morning. I was sat out on the decking and I thought, you know what, I'm going to blog through the book of Acts. And so far I'm up to chapter four (laughs) and I'm eight blogs in, and this is going to take a long time to get to. So this might be become like a life's work or something. But what I've realized really quickly is that there is a lot of things that um, I need to have a little look through. And the reason that, I mean, maybe it's probably worth before we crack into some questions and some topics is it was all unpack why I started doing it and it, it was an idea but it came from the fact that you know thinking church is all to do with church strategy and there's so many times I've heard over the years I've been a Christian all my life and hearing that we need to get back to how the early church did church or we need to find the biblical way of doing church and I was intrigued to find out well let's investigate that because I think we a lot of people have said it but uh and they have this mind that there's a kind of a a manual of how to do church but is that is that the right way of looking at the book of acts is it a manual of how to run church oh, that's a great question I, I i think i'm well done for digging into the book of acts because it is a great book um i i think it's certainly chris uh, a window into the beginnings and the development of the church i think you have to be careful how to read the book of acts so remembering that this is a story that's being told, um, penned by Dr. Luke, some of the stuff we're getting firsthand from his eyewitness account, and some of that stuff is clearly passed on from uh, reliable sources in his own words. So what you're getting really is an insight into the, the development of the church. And with it, it's some areas, it's very clear on what we might call its ecclesiology. It's understanding what the church is. And then you have some profound insights into its struggles, into some things it's not doing so well. 
it's not just an account of the church going from sort of zero to the heart of the Roman Empire in 30 to 40 years. It's also a church that is struggling with internal ideas, sometimes even with prejudice, sometimes with Bible issues and theology issues that it's grappling with. So as long as we understand when we're reading the book of Acts, what we're not reading is a well-polished ecclesiological manual. What you're getting is a story, raw, uh, vulnerable, honest, um, but not absolutely complete. It's clear that Dr. Luke is not covering every issue. It is clear he summarizes some big events. And it is also clear that there's a whole bunch of stuff he's leaving out because sort of by the middle of the book, he's really zeroing in on life with Paul and, and that particular expression of it. So as long as you understand that, that you're not looking at an A to Z of how to do church, but what you are getting are phenomenal insights that may teach us what is good and also warn us some of the pitfalls, then I think um, an approach to the book of Acts is absolutely essential for any Christian leader and, and anyone serious about seeking to establish church in the 21st century. Yeah, and I wonder that's that's wonder if we can sort of dive into some of the uh, some sort of the sort of overarching strategy of, of of Acts. Is there can you is there a way to be able to plot the can we plot the the strategy of what the church is doing? Is there a strategy in place, or you know, are they just kind of figuring it out as they go, or can you sense that there is some you know, there's some thinking behind this, or, you know, um, even if you want to say, you know, it's leading by the Holy Spirit, but there, you know, there's still a, there's still some kind of uh, plan that's being, being worked out. Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. I think when you are looking at the early chapters of Acts, there's a sense in which uh, this thing's just accelerating, it's exploding, um, you know, you're, we're getting numbers in the thousands who are in some way or another responding. And I think by Acts chapter six, for example, we've reached a place where you've got some serious organizational thinking going on. Uh, so Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves and you get a sense of what the community starts to look like. Some of the big ideas that they're starting to build on and structure but you're still getting a lot of fluidity between the Jewishness of this new group, the way, and uh, you know this this sense that it's it's supposed to be open to the Gentile world, which it's starting to struggle with. There's this interplay between houses and the temple. Uh, they don't seem to have buildings in the way that we see them and understand them today. So there's a huge fluidity there. And then, of course, uh, by chapter six, you've got such growth within the church that you've got massive internal strife around, can I say carefully, uh, racial issues within uh, a sort of a Jewish Christian developing worldview. So you've got clashes between Hebraic widows and Hellenistic widows, uh, simply because of the distribution of food, which points to this the sheer scale this thing is growing at. Uh, and then, of course, we get this sort of explosion with Stephen in uh, chapters 6, 7, and 8. We, we get this uh, introduction to this incredible young man who actually helps distribute the food more accurately and, and professionally. But then he also gets engaged in an incredible sermon, which becomes the touch point, becomes the catalyst, the tipping point, 
for a persecution that breaks out in the church and essentially scatters a largely Jewish contingent of the way into the rest of the world. And that's where it starts to collide with the Gentiles. So if we're looking for strategy early on, it's hard to really get your teeth into that. I think what you've got is a very, very dynamic Jerusalem Christian community. I think you've got a very strong Judean Christian community. I think you've got a real reluctance to reach out beyond the borders of Judea. There's no strategic evidence that the church was doing that. And it's not until persecution happens that that starts to happen. And then it's when we get into Paul uh, or Saul, if you like, and Barnabas, we start to get a sense of strategic thinking around what is going on. And we really start to lean into an idea of planting Christian communities everywhere where there aren't any, if possible, out of Jewish communities. But if that's not possible, straight into Gentile communities. And we also get a real commitment to discipleship, to training, to development and equipping. So, so they really start to develop into this sort of uh, sense of strategy as you hit sort of the middle of the book. You're getting a sense of the church seems to really know what it's doing in terms of reaching the regions beyond planting Christian communities and training and equipping followers of the way. And I think that's a developmental idea. bit messy at the beginning. It feels like that anyway. It may have been not so messy, but it feels like that at the beginning. And much more, it feels much more strategic towards the end, which is maybe pointing to the idea that part of this, they were sort of learning as they went along and other things they were much more comfortable with. So again, uh, helps us to read the book of Acts as a developing narrative. Yeah, I'd like to dive into the the the, the, the classic two forty two passage, which is mm. I think is the most classic scripture. You know, when when everyone says you know let's get back to the book of Acts and that kind of thing, and I hear it a lot. I do hear it. I've heard it a lot. Um, and that what they're referring to is is this passage here. Now, I've sort of researching this. I was looking into this and. I was reading about first century synagogues and I found a bit of a correlation between that and Acts 2.42. There seemed like there's some kind of, you know, there, there's developments for sure from, from uh, the synagogue. But um, am I missing something here or is what's going on in this passage in Acts 2.42? Is, is there something, is there something brand new or is there something that's kind of lived out of, of their, their current understanding? Uh, well, I, again, I think it's a bit of both. I think uh, verse 41 really helps us in Acts chapter 2 because it tells us that there's another big influx numerically into this new community, into this sect, as it's being referred to, or followers of the way. And then what you're having to get as a result of that is a sense of we need to start organizing. Now, imagine, you know, I, I mean, we, we've all experienced this. Suddenly you're thrust into something. You have to start organizing what you tend to do is default to ideas you already know. So is there anything in the Jewish world that would help them organize communities of believers better? Oh, I know. Yeah, synagogue. There we are. So, so actually, it's not a surprise that what you're getting, especially in the early Jewish communities or largely Jewish communities that become followers of the way, it's really not surprising that you're leaning into some really well-worn ideas that they already know. They know how to do community. They know how to share. 
They know how to disciple. They know how to build confessional lit uh, uh, liturgy. They know how to really instill ideas into communities. In fact, the synagogue system really grew out of exile and this idea that they couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't even go to their own land. And the synagogues really developed as many communities, many temples that would help both preserve the Torah and uh, develop a sense of community around the word of God and around their identity in God. So, so what you're getting, I think, is a, is a little bit of a mix of all of that. And, and in fact, if you also widen it out a bit, you'll see early Christians, early followers of Jesus also still going to the temple. They're still using the sort of patterns of temple prayer, for example, to follow their own prayers. And we, we have that in Acts 3, where the man is healed at the gate beautiful at the hour of prayer. So, so you, you get a sense that what's happening is they're clearly bringing some new stuff in here. And, and the apostles' teaching of Acts 2.42 leans into that, where clearly they are rooting their, their theology and their ecclesiology much more on Jesus' interpretation of the Torah or Jesus' fulfillment of the Torah than they are on Moses, per se. And that's a new development. But things like prayers, things like fellowship in the, in the truest sense, uh, the idea of um, uh, you know, supporting one another through, th these are well-worn ideas within a Jewish community and therefore would be naturally developed. And, and what's really interesting is in Acts 2.42, if you go all the way down to verse 47, you're getting a mix of what feels like structural approach. So there's things that they're common on. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, which could refer to both sort of the Last Supper and just meals together, um, prayers and, and fellowship. And then you get this commentary on it that they if anyone had need, they help one another, they supported each other, they shared in each other. That's a very, very Hebraic idea. And the idea that your faith could somehow ignore the community needs of your brothers and sisters is an alien concept to um, to Torah and an alien concept to, to good Jewish believers. So there's a natural lead into this. And so when we read 242 onwards, we I think there's some patterns we could follow. I think Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. I mean, I think they travel anywhere. And then I think you're also getting expressions of real uh, Judaistic culture or Jewish culture that is now traveling to a new uh, uh, trajectory under the guidance of the teaching of Jesus in the way. And therefore, new things are developing as well as um, perhaps leaning into older ideas. Yeah, it, it certainly seems, when I was writing a blog on it, it definitely seemed to me that I, I described them as supercharged synagogues, you know, and I think what you're, it's hitting on that, the fact that synagogues were built around the teaching of Moses, but this is around the teaching of, of Jesus, and the teaching of Jesus is, you've heard it said, but now I say to you, and it's, it's going that one level further, so it's not, it's not just, well, it's not just we'll be charitable. It's like we will sell stuff if we need to. We're going that, it's, everything to me seems to be that kind of one step further and uh, you know when i was looking into first century synagogues it was yes they they looked into um i've got some things here they they would um have political meetings and they would have 
worship there and they would have uh they would you know give to the poor but it just always seems like there's they're going that one there's that one step further where they're taking it back and they're not just taking it to the teachings of moses but the teaching teachings of jesus so it's it's almost taking what what's the community that you know and how can how does the teachings of jesus change what we know and that's what I, so I was trying to think of that how do you put that into today because you know we have aspects of community that we know you know even from you know, established churches or community centers or, you know, go to watch football matches. There's, there's essences of community. And is that something, is there something that we can learn from that? But maybe it's not quite the kind of what I was grew up with, what people saying, you know, the kind of hippie commune style thing that, that kind of people said, oh, you know, you've got to sell all your property. I don't think that's what they're getting at. It seems like there's something a little bit, a little bit more attainable. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think what you've got in, for example, by the time we hit Acts chapter four uh, and and a little bit further, is you've got a sense that the parameters, the beliefs, the ideas of this new community of the way is really starting to gather traction. But remember, they're looking for models that that actually are going to help carry this this new community. And there are some well-worn ideas within their world in terms of how to do that community uh, and how to help one another and support one another. And remember, you used the word supercharged there. I remember, of course, the other massive element that's going on here is this empowerment of this community by the person of the Holy Spirit. So you've, you've now got two incredible elements that are really at the heart of this change. You've got um, an understanding that Jesus is, is not only a way to read Moses, but Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. That's a radical idea. And in fact, ultimately, that would become a bit of a clash in the largely Jewish church because some would say, well, no, to become a Christian, you've got to go through Moses to come to Christ. Paul starts to argue, no, no, you can come straight to Jesus. You don't have to go through Moses. So, so this is a radical idea. They're not just they're not just reading Moses differently. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. He is the fulfillment of the Tanakh, the whole of the scriptures. And then secondly, they are empowered by the Spirit. So, so imagine then that that new sense of, if you like, theology alongside this empowerment by the Holy Spirit, this pneumatology, then this pushes something into this community, which is very different. So these great ideas, which many of which are rooted in Torah, now, as you say, become sort of supercharged or they become a different focus and push out. And of course, it does teach us that, that engagement with the kingdom of God does two amazing things as far as our culture is concerned. One is it challenges our culture. So there's some things about my culture which need to change. And actually, I can't just put a Christian jacket on it and sort of sex it up a little bit and sort of think, oh, okay, I've got Jesus. So it's okay to have that part of my culture as long as Jesus is sort of in the mix. There are some things in my culture, my upbringing, even my religious background and culture that are challenged by the kingdom of God. And we have to accept that. And I think you start to see that in the book of Acts. You start to see wonderful Jewish believers really getting uncomfortable with the idea of Gentiles coming into the church without going through Moses. So that's one example of challenge of culture. But then the other thing that the Bible or the kingdom of God does brilliantly is that it can also absorb and transform our culture. So in other words, there could be things within our culture 
that uh, the kingdom doesn't just challenge in a sense and say we have to change or eradicate, but actually the kingdom can jump onto and bring a sense of life and health within that. So, so for example, today we're having all phenomenal conversations about, about what does online community look like? What does what does can we do online church, for example? Now, that conversation wasn't relevant 50 years ago because culturally, technologically, it's just not, not possible. Now we're having theological conversations partly because of the cultural developments in our world. And so we're asking questions, okay, where does the theology of the kingdom and the theology of the church fit with, for example, technology? Can the two marry together? Or is it a case of challenge? Or is it a case of adaptation and change? And I think that's a great example. So, so it's, it's, it's recognizing that the, the values of the kingdom challenge our culture, and sometimes we have to change in order for the kingdom to come. Um, and then sometimes they sort of help adapt our culture, make the best of our culture, uh, use uh, the elements of our culture for the glory of God, provide it, provide it, and this is a big proviso, provided it doesn't mean fundamentally compromising the values and ethics of that kingdom. So if I'm imbibing my culture and I'm having to compromise my belief system in order to imbibe that culture, then that that's a no-no. But if there are elements of my culture that can be redeemed by the kingdom of God, by following Jesus in the way, then why not? We should use all of that in order to present uh, Jesus to our world. Yeah, I was. Um, so I was. I was working through this morning on the beginning of uh, Acts chapter four, and what really struck me at the beginning of that chapter was just um, how offensive the gospel was. And I sometimes I was starting to think about it, thinking about how sometimes I'm not suggesting that we should become horrible people, but that that um, when you live out the the gospel, that that it can be offensive, and that, and, we, and maybe it's something that we've lost maybe in the Western societies that that ability for the gospel to be uh, offensive now yeah don't hear what i'm not saying i'm not suggesting you know no. placards and, and anything like that yeah. um no. uh, or you know shouting yeah. people I, I, but there is something no, about no, the, I, the idea of it it could be it should be a bit more it should create a strong reaction exactly i i think there's a difference between being obnoxious and offensive in the way we do things and people being offended or challenged or uncomfortable with what we actually believe. So if people are being put off my faith because I'm, you know, a Muppet, because I'm behaving appallingly, because uh, my behavior is at, at every level unacceptable, then that's nothing to do with the gospel. That's to do with me not getting my brain in gear and not actually taking control of my personality and character. Um, and over the years, I have seen really bad behavior, really bad behavior on behalf of Christ, excused on the basis of, well, the gospel offends people. Absolutely. It does offend people when we get really down to it. And you can see that in the life of Jesus uh, uh, over and over again. You know, I was reading in Luke 13, Jesus heals the woman on the Sabbath. And it says that the, the experts in the law, that those who led the synagogue were humiliated by his words, but all the people were delighted by his actions. So there's Jesus in the synagogue, literally splitting the crowd. Um, but he's he's not going out of his way to be obnoxious. Anybody can be obnoxious. Uh, and we've had some controversy this week 
uh, even in terms of our political arena, where senior politicians describing other politicians with words that if I'd have used that in front of my mother, my mother would have probably put me on over her knee. So, so it's this is unacceptable. If people are going to be offended at your ideas, hey, look, there's very little we can do about that. But if people are offended because we're just being stupid, because we're not behaving well, then then that that's something we've got to change. Jesus did come to bring a, a, a sword, and the sword was the sword of truth that would divide people. But he didn't come to destroy people. He didn't come to humiliate people, and he didn't come to unnecessarily polarize people. Society is polarized enough without our behavior making it easier to hate Jesus or easier to reject the church. So I would appeal to Christians. I would appeal to leaders. Listen, be passionate. Be clear. Let's be men and women who are able to stand up and defend uh, the ideas of, of Bible and gospel and Jesus as Jesus followers. But that's do it in a way that actually is not uh, hurting the very message so that people are not turning away from it because of us, but they're turning away from it if they do that because of it. And then that that's there's nothing we can do about that. That's the way it is, and that's the way it will always be. But uh, but when we properly present the gospel, when we really get down to Jesus, and it is Jesus. I, in my 34 years of ministry experience, when we talk about God generically, talk about creation generically, talk about nice spiritual ideas generically, it's amazing who you can be friends with in the room. Introduce Jesus into the conversation, and He has a an amazing ability to split a room. And it's often that some of the greatest offense is around the claims of Christ, both to us and for us and on us. So, so I, I think we've got to stay focused on that and remember that's that that's gotta happen, but we don't we don't need to be offensive per se in order for that to happen. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. Um, and getting that distinguish that like that distinguishment right, I think that's gonna be really helpful because I think sometimes I worry that um 20th 21st century church probably is a little bit too nice sometimes in its ideas you know we can sure. talk about things that don't that, that, that um you know we're very nice in our presentation which i think is brilliant and we should remain that way but sometimes we we need to allow the gospel to bring that kind of strong reaction and i think that's gonna be a helpful thing for the church to to, to embrace and I think that's what people interestingly are, are, are looking for they're looking for you know narratives that are gonna they can orient their lives around. And when we don't come with that strong narrative of what the gospel actually talks about, um, and I, I think it, it doesn't give people that opportunity to pick up that narrative. But I think when we do, it is going to create a strong reaction one way or the other. And, and, and maybe that's something that we're going to have to be um, more and more increasingly as we go into a kind of you know, post-Christian society. That's something we might have to be more aware of and aware of that actually that you know, some of what we believe might be offensive to other people, and that's okay. We, and it was offensive to the early church. It, it definitely seems seems that way. Um, yeah, for, for sure. And and I would say, uh, you know, it, it's not just the ideas of Christianity. There'll be lots of ideas out there that I don't necessarily agree with. It's the way we then present those ideas and the way we engage those ideas. I think one of the things. Uh, without taking us in a direction we probably don't want to go today. But one of the things I really worry about for this country is a sort of um, 
subculture or sub idea that seems to be coming mainstream where actually certain ideas, certain thoughts, certain beliefs, certain opinions are are even, you know, being questioned and the, the, the freedom to think, the freedom to express and the freedom to disagree or the freedom to present your ideas. I mean, they are at the bedrock of our society. I think they're at the bedrock of all good biblical thinking. And I get really worried when we're sort of being told what we can and cannot think or what we can and cannot agree with. And if we are going to agree or disagree with it, how we can agree or disagree with that, I, I, I that's what worries me. And I think the next five to 10 years in terms of how we do public conversation on very difficult and potentially divisive conversations, which include faith and followership of Jesus and our views on other things because of that, I think that's going to be absolutely um, fascinating and maybe defining for the next 50 years how we do the next five to 10 years. And certainly I, I'm an avid social media person uh, and, and some of the behavior on social media really does start to worry me in terms of attitude uh, to difference of opinion, how those opinions are expressed and how we appropriate ourselves to differences of opinion. And I think the gospel is right in the middle of that. And if we're going to proclaim Jesus clearly, I think we're always going to uh, find ourselves uh, one way or another at the wrong end of some conversations uh, without, without that worrying us or making us paranoid. But it's how society responds to that is going to be really, really crucial, uh, both at a social and maybe even a legal level in the days to come. So fascinating stuff, really. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. This is only halfway through the podcast and you can listen to the full conversation by joining our members podcast. Just go to our website, www.thinking.church and you can sign up to our members podcast there. It only costs the price of one coffee per month, so it's well worth doing. So why not get a coffee, listen to the podcast and learn something new. We'll see you again for this podcast next week. So bye for now.